Hi, my name is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. For the past few weeks, uh, Pastor Jimmy has been walking us through the book of Psalms. And so last week we were in book two of Psalms, and we looked at Psalm 51. And this is where David was dealing with the sins of murder, murder and adultery before God. And Jimmy helped us see how God restores our relationships with him when we repent and turn to God again. Now this week, we're actually moving on to book three of Psalms. And we will be reading in Psalm 82. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Psalm 82. I think we have all been disheartened lately by reading all the injustice in in the news and in the world, the things that are happening. People are losing their lives to tragic circumstances. And many of the circumstances that they're going through are avoidable and are only the result of man's sin. And I know... This hurts God's heart as well when he sees this injustice. And today, I want to walk through Psalm 82 and see what God has to say about justice and look at how we can partner with him in bringing justice to this world. So um, this has been a challenge for me, um, especially when it comes to just looking at my life and, and seeing how my life aligns with every day bringing God honor by bringing justice like he has. And to, today, I, I want you to hear God's heart. I want you to, to see how God sees things. I want you to look at your own life and, and ask the question, am I partnering with God to bring justice to this world? And I want you to see your place and, and what it looks like to to be someone who partners with God to bring justice. So let's go ahead and stand for the reading of the word of God, Psalm 82. A Psalm of Asaph. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Selah. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are God, sons of the most high, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that your heart is to establish justice. I thank you that your heart is to establish truth. The very foundations of this world are built upon your justice. And I pray that as we go through Psalm 82, that you would reveal in our hearts places that we could change to work alongside you. And help us to be encouraged that if we are already working alongside you, that we continue to do so. 
Thank you for being a God of justice. Thank you for being a God that is not only uh, just and caring for our needs physically, but for our needs spiritually by sending your son. You are just God that loves us and you gave us a way to be your sons and your daughters. And I thank you for that. Help us to see our place in your kingdom and, and work with you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. All right, so we're gonna get straight into it. Uh, we're gonna start off with looking at the very first words, a psalm of Asaph. So as you read through the psalms, you'll notice that there are many different authors. And there's usually an indicator at the beginning of the psalm who wrote it. The author of Psalm 82 is Asaph. And actually, he wrote Psalm 50 and then Psalm 73 through 83. And they're all called the Psalms of Asaph. Good name, right? Asaph was one of the Levites that David, King David, had put in charge of leading the songs in the house of the Lord. So I'm going to quickly go to 1 Chronicles 6, 31, 32. It says this. These are the men whom David put in charge of the service of song in the house of the Lord after the ark rested there. They ministered with song before the tabernacle of the tent of meeting until Solomon built the house of the Lord in Jerusalem and they performed their service according to their order. Also in 2 Chronicles 29, 30, it says that both Asaph and David were skilled singers and poets. So not only did he write and play songs. On top of all that, he also prophesied with songs. Um, With Psalm 83, the main focus of Psalm 83 is actually on prophecy. So Asaph, um, when he writes his songs, he mainly focuses on God's judgment and prayer for, um, and the prayers of different people during these events that are happening around them. So today, we're going to be going through Psalm 82, and it's mainly speaking about God's coming judgment. That's where Asaph is going to focus, God's coming judgment. And so um, now that we know who wrote Asaph, a, a skilled singer, songwriter, who was a Levite, who was serving the Lord, I want to share with you some of the ways that I see that God establishes justice in the world through Psalm 82. So let's, let's go back to verse 1, and we'll read through it, and then we're going to talk about five different ways that God um, brings his justice to this world. So verse 1, a Psalm of Asaph. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. So the first thing that he does, God takes his place as judge. And the, and the first question in this section, and that might stuck out to you guys, is who is this divine counsel that God is about to judge? Because he's just he's going amongst these judges, and, or these gods, and he says, who, who are these people? Now, if you haven't heard of the divine counsel, there are a few understandings of the divine counsel. And I want to quickly cover two of the main ones. So the first view would be that the divine council, or quote-unquote gods, are referring to rulers or judges of Israel. And, and these rulers and judges have gone rogue. And this is the most widely held view of these gods, this divine council. 
And when we're looking at verse one, the most difficult word to translate here is the word Elohim, because it actually does say gods, and it's from the word Elohim. So this view, Elohim, actually refers to human rulers or judges in Israel and not some sort of spiritual being when you hear the word God or angels or things like that. The idea actually comes from Israel's representation of God. So uh, example, Exodus 4.16, God is speaking to Aaron and Moses about then going before Pharaoh, and he says this, moreover, he, Aaron, shall speak for you, Moses, to the people, and it shall come about that he shall be as a mouth for you, and you shall be as God to him, which is Pharaoh. You shall be as God. And so when God spoke through Moses saying, you shall be as God to him, this, this man is, is being a representative of God on earth. And there are a few more passages, such as Exodus 7.1 and Exodus 21.6, that further the idea of Israel actually partnering with God to be his judges here on earth. So when it comes to Psalm 82, different commentators actually render this verse saying that God is coming to his earthly representatives, he's going to stand in front of them, and he's going to judge them, all right? That's the first understanding, that these are human beings, and God's going to stand in front of them, and they're Israel's judges, and he's going to judge them. The second understanding of this verse is that the word Elohim refers to spiritual beings that God created to rule with him. And here are a couple reasons for this view. First is that in almost every situation of this verse, sorry, every translation of this verse, the word Elohim is rendered gods. I went through a, a website, I was going through, changing the translation, gods, 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 gods. And when translating a text, context is key. So if we look down at verse six, go ahead and go down to verse six. Asaph writes, I said, you are gods. Sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. So Asaph actually puts the gods, the Elohim that he wrote about earlier in verse one. He says, like men, you shall die. I mean, if Elohim actually referred to men, there would be no point in saying, like men, you will die, because they're already men. It doesn't make any sense. So... um, Verse 6 and 7 show that Asaph refers to something other than men. Also, if you look at the word Elohim throughout the Bible, it never refers to a human being. Psalm 8, 5 actually says, it says that we are made lower than the Elohim. Human beings are. Uh, yet you have been made a little lower than the heavenly beings, which is Elohim, and crowned him with glory and honor. So the word Elohim when you go through looking at context, it does not refer to men. It refers to spiritual beings. So second, another name for the divine counsel throughout the Bible is the sons of God. Uh, Job has a picture of this. You've read through Job before, the first few verses. Now there was a day, uh, Job 1 verse 6, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan was also there among them these sons of God. So here we have God's divine counsel coming before him, and Satan was there as well. Um, What are they about to do? They're coming before God. What are they about to do? Just stand there? No. They are about to judge someone. Satan is coming to put God's idea of allowing someone, such as Job, 
allowing him to prosper because he follows God. He's going to put that to the test to see if that's really how things should work. And this gathering of the sons of God wasn't just a spectacle for spiritual beings to see what was going on, but for them to be actually a part of the discussion. And this is how the sons of God work. So um, another glimpse of this in 1 Kings, and I'm going quickly through this, um, but it gives you a better understanding of, of how the sons of God and the divine council works. 1 Kings 22, 19 through 23 says, um, and Micaiah said, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing before him on his right and on his left hand. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said one thing and another said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, by what means? And he said, I will go out and I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of his prophets. And he said, you are to entice him. You shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these, your prophets, and the Lord has declared disaster for you. So here, the sons of God are not only doing God's bidding, but they're able to give an input on things that the way things should be executed. He said, what are you going to do? Well, I'm going to do this. And he's like, all right, you go for it. Um, so th- that's how the sons of God, this divine council function in the other view. So if, if these beings are called Elohim, which is another word for God or spiritual beings, does this mean that there is more than one God? And that's where people get tripped up sometimes. Is there more than one God? I just want to be careful to clarify that this view in no way takes away there being only one God. And the misunderstanding comes when using the word Elohim. We're generally taught that Elohim is God's name. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth, right? Um, But this really isn't so. Elohim has been used to refer to angels, is referred to disembodied spirits as well. Think of it as a a category instead of God's name. Um, Just like you would call someone a a mother um, and Even though your mother's name might be Kathy, she is in the category of mothers. And many women are mothers, but you only have one mother whose my mom's name is Kathy. And so this word Elohim is saying God is a spiritual being. There is no one greater than the spiritual being Yahweh, which is his true name, And Yahweh created all things. He created the spiritual beings. He created human beings. He created all of creation, everything that we see. And so when we talk about these little g gods, they are creations of uh, things that God created, but they are spiritual beings as well. So that's the mindset of the second view. First one is that Israel judges uh, are the ones that he's standing up and judging or the spiritual beings that he's asked to rule along with them, he's standing up and says, I'm going to judge you. So those are the two views. So why does this matter? Why does it matter that we define this specific thing as we're going through this? Well, it matters because it changes the ramifications of the psalm. If this verse is referring to Israel judges, then God is coming to judge human Israel judges and Israel itself and, and nothing else. And now if it refers to God's heavenly council, 
that has, have gone rogue, then it means that God is making a statement across the board that he reigns over all things and that his justice will be what is exercised in the end. And if you have questions about this, because I know it was a lot, I would love to talk to you about this. I've actually been reading a lot about this uh, over the past few years. Um, but the, this idea of who God is judging is very important. So the first thing that God did, does... Verse one is God takes his place as judge, as the rightful judge. The second thing that God does is he, to establish justice, is God makes his judgment known. Verse two, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality, uh, partiality to the wicked? Selah. God has seen what his divine counsel has done. God being a perfect judge, and he, he is sick and tired of these things happening. And God steps in and says, this is enough. God says, you have judged without justice. You have given favor to the wicked. From this judgment, we can see that the divine counsel actually has the power to rule. And this is very important because if they didn't, why would God actually come and punish them for ruling incorrectly, right? God is coming to make what was wrong right. So after giving this judgment, this, I'm coming in, I'm telling you what's going on, Asaph writes, Selah. If you don't know what Selah means, Selah indicates for singers to take a breath or to pause for a second. And you know that moment between when you get caught doing something wrong and the punishment, that feeling, you're just waiting. I think this pause is being used to build that suspense. I think Asaph is writing to the, uh, wanting the reader to not only feel the tension of what's about to happen to the divine council, but what could happen to us. He is using them as an example of what not to do. And sadly, but truthfully, some of the best lessons in my life are watching my older brother get in trouble and being able to keep from doing the same thing because I watched what he did. And I'm like, I'm not going to go there. I'm going to do that. All right? God, I think that's what Asaph is doing here. God isn't just making this judgment known to them, but everyone who would do the same thing, he's saying, don't do this. So God first takes his place as judge, and once he makes his judgment known, so everyone knows, the third thing that God does is he establishes, uh, to establish justice, he says he gives a decree to change. He says, I'm, I'm the judge, you're doing what's wrong, and this is what you should change. Uh, verses three and four. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Doesn't that sound, that sound awesome? If that could just happen, all the world, right now. God was saying in this, I'm defining what justice is so that you no longer have an excuse, if you have one at all, to rule wrong. God is saying that uh, those who cannot take care of themselves because they are weak, poor, fatherless, or needy are the ones that, that 
these, this divine counsel should take care of. This is God's very heart. God's heart is always making sure that those who do not have what they need are provided for. I didn't say want, but what they need. It was the job of the divine counsel to reward what was good and punish what was evil. Here, God is saying that they have let the wicked run free and to do whatever they want to. And they are supposed to rescue people who fall into the hands of the wicked, but they weren't. And God heard the cry of those who were in need. And he, he actually cares for those who don't have someone to care for them. James uh, puts it this way in James 1.27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. From the very beginning of time, God has always been a provider. If you think back to the Garden of Eden, the Garden of Eden it was one garden, and we had two people in it, and there was plenty to go around for everyone. And God desires that that giving, that mindset, that taking care of people would multiply and would fill the entire earth. And this is God's heart. Our lives should be about caring for these people, just like God does, both physically, socially, and spiritually. The change that God gave the divine counsel should be what we change, should be the way that we live in this world. So after giving this decree of what you should change, the next thing that God does is to establish justice. Uh, to establish justice is to, that God sentences the divine counsel. He says, this is, this is what's going to happen to you. Verse 5 um, they have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are sh- shaken. I said, you are God, sons of the most high, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Verse five is a little hard to understand um, because the word they, it sounds like it could be referring to the divine council, but also it sounds like it could be referring to the people that they rule over. And I honestly think it's referring to the people that they rule over. Um, the, the divine council has corrupted judgment, uh, judgment and justice and has led these people astray. So God is essentially saying that you have corrupted truth and because of it, the very fabric of the universe and how it's supposed to work has now been shaken. We all function with a certain set of morals. And if what we know as truth is changed, then there's nothing for us to stand on. And if you look at our world today, this is happening. What was once right is now wrong. People are scared to say what they think is true because they're scared to be canceled. Canceled, right? What one person said, calls injustice, another one calls justice. Even today, there is darkness just like then. And God, after he said that you rock the very foundations of what I put together to function properly, God continues by saying that because of this distorting of justice, these rulers will die like men. He's going to dethrone these rulers and sentence them to death like men. And as I said earlier, this is part of the what I believe is the non-human origin of them. Like, why would they die as men if, if, they, if, um, if they're not already men? So I, I think God is saying that you are, you, I made you to work with me 
as spiritual beings. I made you to, to do justice, and you're doing the exact opposite of that. So one question I have here is, has this judgment that God has said is going to happen happened yet? Has he dethroned these rulers? Has he said that, has he, you know, destroyed them like men? And I don't think the fullness of what God has said has come to pass. I mean, look at the world. Injustice is still happening every day. And if it hasn't, if this judgment hasn't taken place, the question is then, when will it take place? Um, And Asaph is, is just about to get into that. So let's go to the last little bit. So, well, first of all, number one, God takes his place as judge. Two, he makes his judgment known. Three, he gives a decree to change. Four, he sentences the divine counsel. And then this brings us to the last thing that God does to establish judgment, justice. God will one day bring a final judgment. Verse eight, arise, O God. Judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. And with this last phrase, Asaph actually speaks again. He says the first thing, he says the very last thing. And this is Asaph's heart cry. God, will you please come and judge every nation by your righteousness? I've often wanted God to do this. And when I... When I think about this, when I think about Jesus coming back and making all things right, there's another thing in my heart that's there too. Another part of me that says, wait, wait, because there are still people who haven't heard the gospel. There are still others who haven't even been born. I mean, imagine if God, uh, if Jesus Christ came back 40 years ago, I wouldn't have been alive. Most of you wouldn't have been alive. You wouldn't have known Jesus Christ. You wouldn't have been raised by loving parents if Christ had come back 40 years ago. So this pull in my heart every time I pray that God comes soon. And this is why we must be about fulfilling the last part of this verse. God will inherit the nations. God does that through us. When we are obedient to sharing the gospel, We are working along with God to bring the nations into his kingdom. And one day, every nation and tribe and tongue will be before the Father. And not just Israel, but everyone who's put their faith and trust in him will have eternal life. So we must be about the gospel work. But I think also John's closing words to Revelation should be on our hearts. Come, Lord Jesus. And one day, the Lord Jesus will come and he will establish his kingdom. And these judges will be sentenced to death like men. We haven't seen that yet. But I I think from this passage, um, I I think we, we need to ask, these are the divine counsel, but what does this mean to us as human beings? What does this mean to us and where we're at in our lives? <clears throat> if this divine counsel is Israel rulers or spiritual beings, how, do, how should we look at this? Paul writes in Galatians 3.26, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God. We used that earlier, sons of God, through faith. 
Again, in Romans 8, 14, it says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Paul says that if we are in Messiah Jesus, we are sons of God. And just like the divine counsel was condemned to die like men, if we are in the Messiah as sons of God, we take their place and rule with God. Adam in the beginning was supposed to rule with God, and God has given us the place to rule with him again. So since we are sons of God, I see from the text four ways that we can partner with God to bring justice in this unjust world here and now. Here and now. The first is align yourself with God's truth. Align yourself with God's truth. We cannot be a part of bringing God's justice if we are the ones bringing the injustice. Sin in our lives is what brings us that which is what keeps us from partnering with God. If we are to bring justice, we need to examine our lives and ask God to reveal things in our lives that bring injustice. King David was an example of this. At one point in his life, he was working with God to bring about justice. He was passionate about this. But one day he saw a beautiful woman and took advantage of her. Then by his power, he murdered an innocent man. And he took advantage of two people for his own personal gain. And this might seem like, oh, I'm never going to do this. But Jesus said that when you hate someone, that you have murdered them. He said that if you lust after someone, you've committed adultery with them in your heart. We are all made in God's image. And each of us should, should be respected and loved just as Jesus loved us. And when we sin against one another... We undo the justice that God wants to establish. The very foundations of the earth tremble because of that. So let's examine our lives and align ourselves with God's truth, asking God to change the things in our lives that are adding to the injustice that are happening. The second way to partner with God is bring justice to the weak and the fatherless. And I think there are a couple ways of looking at doing this. The first would be individually, individually. It's simply us treating people how God desires them to be treated. It's us loving them and honoring them and respecting them and caring for them. And how, how do we do this? I would suggest that we seek out those in need. We get into the community. We talk to people, ask God to open our eyes to the needs of the people that are around us. Even the people that are in our own family. We don't even pay attention. We, we care about our own so much that we don't see that we can help the people around us. We can't truly know how to help someone unless we are involved in their day-to-day lives. You know the, the man on the street that you pull up next to that's asking for money? How many of you have gotten out of your car and, and gone over and talked to them? Because most of the time it's like, all right, here's $5. I give my charity. I'm going to move on. But who says that was their real need? What if they had a deeper need? And you didn't know because you didn't stop to take the time. And, and that's people in our community. Do we get into our community enough to know the needs of people, to bring about justice? So that's one way individually I think that we can do that is, is getting involved in people's lives. 
And not saying that people don't want to do that. I think there's also this big gap between the people that have and the people that don't have. And these people don't know how to get over here. And because they've seen all the ways that, that people over here have tried to manipulate uh, someone to get what they want. And that's not always the case. And so there's this gap that needs to be bridged. And this is something that we can do when we get involved in people's lives and know them and love them. Another thing is uh, when it says the fatherless, that, that we should care for the fatherless, a couple ways that come to mind. First is the foster care system, adoption. And we have a couple families in our church that have adopted and they have blessed those children. They have loved those children. They have cared for them, the ones that were fatherless. And maybe God is asking you, hey, I want you to partner with me in bringing justice. I want you to foster. I want you to adopt. Maybe God's asking you to, to do that individually as your family. Our homes should be a place that people can come and see God's justice. Usually our, our homes are places of retreat for us. But what if we opened up our homes for people to come and to, to see God's justice and God's love and God's kindness? And that includes even fostering, adopting. And that's a big leap, but that's God's heart is for the fatherless. Another way of helping the fatherless is to invest in those who do not have fathers. Um, We have been blessed with so many great fathers in this church. You love your kids. You spend time with them. You care about where they are with the Lord. But there are so many people in this community that don't have fathers. I went to a youth meeting for the, for the town of Surrey just a few months ago. And I was talking to them about how the best way to build community in Surrey is to have strong families. And one of the, the people on the board says, yeah, I've seen so many families with kids that they come to me and say, hey, can you come to my game? And can you do this with me? And can you do, can you do that with me? Because their, their parents aren't involved or the fathers are not there. And God's heart is for those people. God's heart is for those fatherless. And, he's, and God is asking, will you go to those fatherless that don't have someone in their life and care for them? I, I've had so many people invest in my life that have mentored me, that have, have walked alongside me, that I am so grateful. And, and at the same time, that's what we all should be looking for, is investing in those who don't have fathers to guard them and take care of them when they are weak. Um, God is asking us to partner with him in that way. And that's individually. Now, I want to talk the church as, as a whole, something that we can do, we can gather together. I've been talking to a couple people this past couple weeks, Donna Cox, Chris Lawrence. I've been asking, what are the needs in the, in the schools around here? What are the needs in Surrey? And some of the things that, they, that Donna had to say was like, you know, there's a lot of needs of people giving their time to help with getting, getting clothing to kids in the schools. There's time, there's a need for people giving their time to mentor kids in schools, to help them with their schoolwork, just to, to be there. Um, Chris Lawrence and I were talking about, what about people that need food around here? What are some ways that our church can be involved in that? And she's like, well, what if we start a COP? 
in Surrey. I mean, what, she, she was wanting to look into what is the actual need so we know exactly how we can help. But this is, our church needs to reach into the community and, and bring justice to those that are, that are in the community, not just in the physical needs, but also in the spiritual needs. How are we doing that? Is God moving your heart to help with that? If he is, I ask that you come talk to me or Chris Lawrence or, or Donna Cox. There's so many opportunities that we have that we could do that we're just not doing. I don't know exactly why we're just not doing them right now. So I, I, if God's moving your heart to help with that so we as a church can move together and bring justice where we are at, I, I ask that you come and, and talk with me, okay? Um, so... The, that's the, the second way. The third way, I think, that we can partner with God to bring justice is to teach those who are without knowledge. And this sort of goes back to the previous one a little bit, but um, not only do we need to provide physical needs, but we also need to provide knowledge. And the place to start with is providing the knowledge of God's love, sharing the gospel. And uh, we did this this past Tuesday. We had set up a booth down at National Night Out. We had people come by they love the ice cream. They got all the ice cream. And, but at, at, after we gave them ice cream, we said, hey, can we talk to you real quick? Can we ask you some questions? And we brought them to the side and we said, what are your spiritual beliefs? What do you believe about God? What does Christian mean to you? I'm a Christian. Can I tell you what Christianity means? Can I tell you about what Christ did for you? Can I, can I share the love of Jesus Christ with you? And through that time, we had a lot of people that were very interested. And we had one kid who actually confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. His name is Josh. Please, please be praying for him. Josh, I don't know his last name. I gave him my card. I said, hey, give me a call. And here's our service times. We'd love to have you. But people want to know, they want to have understanding and knowledge. The people that are in Psalm 82 did not have knowledge and understanding. And this world is putting people back in that place where there is not knowledge and understanding of Christ. But past that, they don't need just, they need Christ, of course, but something else that we could do is give them the knowledge of what God has given us in our skills, in our trades. We could just meet with people and, and say, hey, let me share my life with you. Let me share first Christ, but also how I do this. I mean, I've had so many people, even just for my life, come in and say, hey, this is how you put together a wall. This is how you put up drywall. This is how you do this. And I'm like, thank you so much, you know? There's so many people that don't know these things. And, and you're like, well, I, I don't have anything to give. Give what God has given to you. I mean, Russ, I mean, the way that you do networking, Someone could use that and build a career off that and, and have a job to provide for their family through that. I mean, we all have gifts. We just, are we giving, giving them? Are we looking after the, the, the needy, the weak, the fatherless, and giving our lives to that? So we need to first teach Christ, but also teach trades. People know, need to know how to do things. And that can be us partnering with God and bringing justice to this world. And the last thing... Um, the fourth application is to live like Jesus every day. To live like Jesus every day. Jesus' last prayer um, in the garden was that we would be one with the Father. Every day, Jesus joined himself with the Father's will and plan. And he partnered with God to bring about justice. And if, and if all the things that I stated before seem impossible to do, 
It's because they are unless we do them with God. He is the one who will give us ideas and bring people to mind. He will give us the courage to talk to the right people. We are not alone in doing this. We have God living inside us by his spirit. And he's asking each and every day, will you join me in bringing justice in this unjust world? Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check us out on YouTube and Facebook to get to know us and see what God is doing here in Surrey. Be blessed. <laughs>